Hey, good morning. Thank you, church, for having me. I love the Capital C Church. I am usually at my own church, and uh, I, they're doing their own thing today. So uh, let's hope they're doing all right. You should pray for them. So a little bit about me. Uh, I'm born and raised in Seattle. Uh, I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2000. That's where I met my husband. Um, and the picture will pop up in a second here. So this is my husband. Look how handsome he is. He's just a you know, basic white guy with a bald head and beard. <laughs> so basically every, every white man you've ever met, right? These are my kids. Uh, Paxton is on the, the uh, right here. He's my youngest. He's my baby. He's going to be 15 in a bit here. Uh, my freshman. <laughs> the world's in high school. Don't worry. Don't, don't do the math. I'm actually very young. Um, that's Chance in the back that's standing like this. Uh, he is going to be a senior. I know it doesn't look it. Uh, can you also just look at his shoes? <laughs> I said, family, we're going to take family pictures that will forever be marked in history for families from generations and generations to come. Pick your outfits. And he said, done. I got it. He actually ordered those. He, he entered into a contest to get these Lightning McQueen light-up Crocs. They light up, my friends, <laughs> like toddler shoes. And he's like, pow, wow, mom, look, pow, wow. And I just said, mm, okay, but I didn't pay for them. That's fine. So this is his choice when it comes to family pictures. I did a great job parenting, clearly. So there we are. Uh, anybody else here, uh, boy, mom? Anybody, parents of boys? Yes. How much does our house stink? Oh my goodness. Pray for us, friends that don't, yeah, just pray for us. So I have been in ministry for over two decades. I've had a privilege of just doing what I felt God had called me to do. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Moved from Seattle to Texas to Oklahoma, back to Texas, and now I'm in the DC area. I actually live in Northern Virginia, which that whole area is called the DMV. It's DC. Maryland, Virginia. It's like one big city. So uh, obviously lots of uh, politics there. That's super fun. So uh, just whenever you think of me, think of me there. So I oversee one of the campuses there, not in DC specifically, but Northern Virginia. We, uh, we lovingly call it NOVA, take the first two letters of whatever. And uh, I oversee the departments at that church um, or that location. And so I'm very grateful that I've gotten to hire people that are just better than me and what I do, uh, and so uh, I can leave and be with you guys today. This is very rare, so thank you for having me. Uh, I was in worship for 17 years, and then I just thought, I don't want to be 90 years old and someone say, you should not be singing anymore. So I, uh, I retired. Every now and then they, they pull me back in. So I love getting to do all of the different things, and it's really, really fun. So Aaron was correct. I am a nerd. I am a self-proclaimed nerd, also a self-proclaimed comedian. You're welcome. I, uh, I naturally uh, am a curious person, have always been. I will probably be in school for the rest of my life because I like to give establishments my money and I like to learn from people that are smarter than me. I've realized this, the more I learn, the less I know. So I don't know why I keep doing this to myself. It's fine. The good news is it makes me dive deeper in reckless abandon. Bad news is I, I bring really good people like you along with me for the ride, so uh, hang on and good luck. Are you ready to do some exegesis? 
Come on, let's do this. Today we're diving into James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open that and follow along. If you don't, don't worry, it's on the screens because we are in 2023. So here we go. I'm reading out of the uh, NRSV. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, NRSV, okay. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of them says, uh, one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Okay, we're gonna dive super deep into this. This is the reading of the Lord, scripture, yada, 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 read on your own. Read both sides, guys, don't just take a text, read the whole thing, okay? So in the whole book of James, this section has been noted to be the most theologically significant and also the most polemical and controversial. So clarity is super key today, okay? I wanted to put this out there right in front of you at the, at the, just at the beginning uh, in case in the next 25 minutes or so you feel like yourself grappling with what we talk about. If you're feeling uncomfortable, don't worry, you're in good company. I am uncomfortable most of my life. So... Before we dive into the text, here's some historical context. About 90% of the ancient Greco-Roman population were working class poor. They were soldiers, they were shippers, they were dealers. They were artisans, traders. They were landless peasants. Then there was the 10% that were elites. And then there was the extra 1% that were the imperial Elites. It's similar to what we have. We just have a much bigger middle class here in the United States. So in this context, when we talk about honor and good, they were associated with those that had power and status. Honor was defined as a person's feeling of self-worth and the public's acknowledgement of that worth. So it stood for a person's place in society. Honor was a central uh, thing to family and to community identity, and it always connected one's social status to whether, uh, whether they were in a rural village or they were in the emperor's household. It didn't really matter. Honor was intimately tied uh, to the structure of power relations within the family and division of labor. So all that to say, if you were an honored person in society, you never did manual work. You didn't do dishes. You didn't pick up anything you dropped laundry-wise. You didn't do gardening. You didn't do anything except elite things. So additionally, the rich and the poor at that time were solely economic terms. It was more about the ability to maintain honor and status. And the ancient world believed that good and honor was limited, which means if you were to gain honor, it was usually... At, the, at someone else's expense. So James's letter here addresses the members of the church whose minds and hearts have been submitted to culture by values and ideology of their surrounding society. What James does is he constructs a positive identity and ideology for his audience, platforming the non-elites, those who care for the poor, among them, and he calls them honorable. 
What James writes is extremely countercultural at that time. Because the title of honorable and good belonged only to the elites, not the common folk. Therefore, this idea that the poor could be honorable and good, it challenged the dominant culture of the Roman Empire. In the Greco-Roman world, being a slave, which by the way, I need you guys to think of the word slave and think about how we did it in America. Very, very different and not even close to the same thing, okay? So as hard as it is, take yourself out of the American context of slavery. Being a slave in ancient times was actually better than being poor. As a slave, you could climb your way up the social and economic ladder. People that came upon hard times would voluntarily enslave themselves so that they can pay off their debt and they can move forward. You could even rank, um, you could even gain Roman citizenship as a foreigner through enslavement. The poor ranked so much lower than slaves that they were actually not able or allowed to even become enslaved. And because of that, the poor had no options. And back then, there was no such thing as charity. That was not practiced. So now that we have some context, let's dive into the, these verses here. So starting in verse 14, it says, what good, or ophelos, is it my brothers and sisters if you say you have faith, Greek is pisti, but do not have work, erga. Can faith save you? So here, ophelos, means good, it's translated actually more like profit or gain. Faith or pisti, in secular terms in Greek, um, in Greek is a better translated as trustworthy, uh, loyalty or steadfastness. The word pisti is also used to refer to like a credit in banking. Something for us to note, we in the modern world view faith as an inward and psychological thing, but this is not what pisti meant back then. That's not how the ancient world viewed it. So then here the word works, which is erga, it's understood as good deeds. Be doers of the word, not just a hearer, doers. The call is to put faith into action to be a doer of faith, because faith that is alive is one that demonstrates itself in brotherly love. So let's look at it again with uh, a more literal, trans literal translation where I just went through. So what is to gain, my brothers and sisters, if you say you are trustworthy, but do not practice good deeds? Can faith or trust save you? There are two questions that I think James is asking here. The first question is this. What good is faith unaccompanied by works? James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. Rather, he's suggesting that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. Faith is not supplemented, but defined as part of the wholeness of your life. The issue is not of faith itself, but a faith that has no works. So what kind of faith, what kind of faith is, in biblical terms, no faith at all, is what we're saying here. Faith, in ancient times, was not tied to morality or how you viewed your neighbor. However, justice was defined relationally, how we relate to God and how we relate to others around us. And this takes on the form of charity, which was a very new concept in the ancient world. And in the early church, 
They were winning market share because they were doing this. They were caring for the poor. They were caring for the widow, for the orphan, for the sick, the outcast, the marginalized, those experiencing homelessness. James is reminding his readers that faith is not abstract. Faith requires a component of action. So when asking this first question, what good is faith? What good is a faith that is unaccompanied by works? The answer is no good. The second question I think he's asking though is this, is such a faith able to save? The way we ter- uh, view the term today of save, uh, being saved or salvation um, is not the same way it was used back then. We use salvation today as a past tense, like I was saved when I was 12 years old. Salvation in ancient times was future tense, as in the end of times, the end of the age, and they believed that was coming soon. There's an urgency in all biblical writings. The Greek word literally means safety or to protect. However, even though salvation was used in future sense, the work of salvation, the word is in the present, in today. Faith without works cannot save you. The prophets of the Old Testament, above all, criticize the faith and ritual actions of the fellow Israelites because they neglected their social responsibilities. Similarly, me standing in front of you professing my faith and practicing my sacred rhythms, though they are important, it is not sufficient. What is required is a life of good deeds in action. that embrace love and there's a concern for others. So let's flash back real quick to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. In chapter seven, starting in 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of my Father in heaven. The will of the Father is the greatest command, is to love God and love others. Come on together, love God and love others. I'm so glad you're still with me. When we call Jesus Lord, we are really submitting ourselves to the lordship of the commandments of Jesus, to the rule and the reign of Jesus. We obviously don't have lords in our culture today, and even those of the culture like overseas that have lords, it's very, very different in how we view it than what was in ancient times. To put ourselves under the lordship of someone means that everything in life that we build, every decision we make, everything that we say, every breath we breathe is toward the building of our Lord's kingdom. It's not just that we believe in Jesus, but we've dedicated every part of ourselves to him. But if we take a beat and give ourselves just a moment to reflect and really just think about it, step outside of ourselves, can we honestly say that every part of our lives are building toward God's kingdom or are we building toward our own empire? When James goes to answer the second question, is such a faith able to save? The answer is a resounding no. So let's move 
to the beginning of the next verse here, 15. If a brother or sister is naked, my kids love that word. Anyway, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, we're going to stop here. The word naked here is gunoi, and lacks daily food is ephemeru trophes. I'm going to make you say it. You ready? Everyone say gunoi. Look at that. You guys are fluent in Greek. Uh, Say ephemeru. Trophis. Good job. Gunoi doesn't actually mean naked. It actually means poorly clothed, like just your undergarment or rags. Ephemerotrophis means habitually underfed. That you are constantly falling short of daily supply, supply of food that is required to sustain life and thriving. So if we read it this way, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is habitually underfed, And today, it kind of paints a picture for us for those that are in the most marginalized community. Those in our community that are in our minority groups. Those of our friends that are experiencing homelessness. Side note, this is just for free. When we say this person is homeless, we're actually putting, we're we're calling that on their character. There's nothing about homelessness that is their character. They are experiencing homelessness homelessness. And I think when we say that, just the terms of saying, this is my friend experiencing homelessness versus this person is homeless, it changes our posture and how we see the Imago Day. Do whatever you will with that. That's just free. That had nothing to do with this. Okay, let's read it on. So again, all of this is not a new concept. It's been addressed many times in the Bible. Everything that we read is like that. So let's go back to the Old Testament where we would see them fast in the name of worship, but while they were fasting, they were actively oppressing people. So in Isaiah in 58, we read this. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. This text shows a clear order. God is saying, first, care for the other. God says, fight injustice. Free the oppressed. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Bring the homeless into your homes. And when I call you, or when you call me, I will answer. God promises that caring for the poor brings redemption. Now, let's pause. I am not suggesting that on your drive home, you pick up someone that's experiencing homelessness. If you guys go and like, Jenny told me to do this, write an email, Pastor Dan will answer. Don't do that. Let's be wise about it, okay? But I am saying, how are we enveloping others, the marginalized, the easily forgettable into our community? which leads to the beginning of the next verse. 
This is, I'm going to take a piece of this here. So at the beginning of 16, it says, and one of you says to them, that's what English says, and one of you says to them, here we are, going to nerd out, hang out with me. If I lose you, just remember, come back. I promise I won't stay here long. In Greek, it is written like this. It says, epe de tis autois ex humon. I'm not going to make you say that. It's a lot. Epe de tis autois ex humon, okay? Direct translation into English is this. Tell if someone they from you. And that is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Tell if someone they from you. I point this out because it's clearly missing something in English, right? So, tis, autois, and humon. Tis means someone, autois is them, and humon is you. There's a juxtaposition in these three pronouns here and the word of or ex in Greek here that sits between someone and them helps specify, specify the partitive idea in the you of humon. I know I've missed, like all of, some of you have checked out. That's okay, come back right now. What does this mean in English other than tell if someone they from you? When you read the Greek, taking into consideration the order of these words, what you see James communicating is from among your community. James is saying, and what if someone from among your community is poorly clothed and habitually underfed? What are you going to do about it? So the next time someone says to you, the Bible clearly says, you can just say, uh, yeah, tell if someone they from you. <laughs> when people tell me that, I'm like, tell me more. Okay, so let's read all of 16 here. Someone from among your community is poorly clothed and habitually underfed, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? Why would James tell them to tell the poor to go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill? So often we read scripture and we're like, Ex do exactly what it says. Um, why would they say to do this when they don't have shelter, they don't have clothing, they don't have food? Um, I'm so glad you asked. Let me answer that question for you. James is being sarcastic. <laughs> if you only knew how often the text was being sarcastic, it is fun times, guys. In fact... When he says, go in peace or peace be with you, in biblical, uh, common biblical blessing, is found, this is found in the Old Testament. However, by this time in culture, that saying, go in peace, functioned as a religious cover for the failure to act. Similar to us when we say, bless your heart, it does not mean bless your heart. It means something worse. Or thoughts and prayers. Now, there's something beautiful about thoughts and prayers. And I'm saying, yes, please pray. It's important. But what action is connected to our words? The verbs, keep warm and eat your fill, are passive in Greek, which expresses a pious belief that God will relieve the needs of the poor. Again, thoughts and prayers, which James asks, what is the good of that? Failure to provide for an obvious need not only harms those who are in need, but it raises the questions about the hearts of those who fail to act. For us that fail to relieve that need when we can.
Jesus talks about this exact issue in the parable of the judgment of the nations. It's the parable of the separation of the goats and the sheep in Matthew 25. Jesus tells us that this action is imperative in how we demonstrate concern for others. So starting in verse 42 here, it says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, in prison and you did not visit me. And then when Jesus' listeners asked, when did we not care for you? Jesus answers this. Truly I tell you just as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. Jesus goes on to say that God will grant entrance into his kingdom based on the works of charity. But, it will, dis but will dismiss from his presence those who fail to relieve the needs of the destitute. Jesus is reiterating the teachings of Jesus here. He says in 17, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is, come on. So faith by itself that it has no works is? Yes. Thank you, church. The the words faith by itself or faith alone here is only ever mentioned in James 2.17. We are not saved by faith alone. Isolated faith, my friends, is a useless faith. It's not only outwardly inoperative, but it is inwardly dead. Living out your faith is acting to care for the impoverished, for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for everyone that does not have the same resources that we have. Jesus and Paul never tried to change politics or anything in the nation. Jesus never tried to topple Caesar. He just went out and actively lived a non-violent, called life. How do we reflect our triune God actively. So my son Chance, who's a senior now, when he was in sixth grade, we were moving from El Paso, Texas, desert, to Oklahoma City. And he had already started sixth grade, but we're starting again in a new school in the middle of the year because um, we're great parents. And so we move, and I'm kind of like trying to like get my job in order, but also do all the paperwork for schools for the kids. We're trying to get everything in place, you know, we, we, we stuff money in their lunch uh, accounts. We get the paperwork that, uh, so they could do sports, all the paperwork. We're good to go. I think I'm good. I'm pretty organized. I'm like, I think we're fine. So two weeks into school, all of his lunch money is gone. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. Maybe I missed it. Didn't think much of it. Possible. So my husband Brian and I filled his lunch account so there was enough for a month. You know, two weeks later, not even two weeks, another alert, lunch account low. I'm like, this kid is eating my life away. What is happening? What, how many lunches does he need? I'm, you know, and then, you know, I thought some of you, but like the longer I sit in it, the more angry I get, and I create stories in my head. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's just what, I'm thinking the worst. So my husband, who is incredible, he says, you know, 
I'll just take it, I'll just chill out. Let's just ask him. So he comes home and I'm like fuming and I'm like, okay, honey, tell me, help me understand why we just filled your lunch account and now it's like $2. And he goes, mama, I'm so sorry. There were, there's these two kids at school that I've never seen them bring a lunch or eat lunch, so I just buy them lunch. I'm like, I'm the best mom ever. <laughs> I totally know how to parent. <laughs> so good. I am like, I'm actually honestly bawling at that point because I'm like, oh my goodness, my kid is so great. He's doing this. That point on, my husband and I made sure lunch always filled with money because in that moment, chance taught us to look up and out. He showed us what generous, generosity reflected from an irrationally generous God, what that looks like. Granted, it was my generosity. <laughs> Moot point, I am the saint. I want you to remember that right now. Never met these kids. I fed you, I'm just kidding, okay, listen. It's not about what chance is doing or what he did. It's not about doing what they did in ancient times. For us, it's about God's calling on us and us putting our faith into action in our current culture and our context. We all work in different places. We all live in different neighborhoods. We all have different relationships. What does that mean for us? Holy Spirit will tell you and he will speak boldly to you and how you're supposed to step into that action. How are we supposed to do this? Because God's kingdom, because in God's kingdom, we live in response to his command to love God and to love others. The question is, are we working toward the kingdom of God or are we working toward our own empire? So often we look at the gravity of what's happening in the world and we become overwhelmed. It's too big. We look at Maui, it's too big, what can we do? There's so much need, I am only one person, but I wanna suggest, what if we step back and we look at taking action to help one person at a time? One situation at a time, one day at a time. It's no longer overwhelming because what was once impossible in community and in action, becomes reconciled. Church, we have some work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Faith without works is dead. We don't need a new word. We need a now word. Howard Thurman says it this way, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Church, let's live alive. Let's live for life. And today I wanna close by reciting together uh, the prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. So if you'll recite with me, here we go. Most merciful God, 
we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen, amen.